All right, Ecclesiastes 7. Uh, we're picking up today on a, with a, a passage that we looked at briefly uh, last week, um, chapter 7, verses 15 down through verse 18, and we didn't really get to the verses themselves uh, in detail. We just tried to lay some groundwork, but we'll definitely get, uh, get through the text uh, this morning. But let me just read it for us, and then I'll sort of catch us up on what we kind of summarized, what we discussed last week, in case you weren't with us, and then we'll, uh, we'll get into this and uh, to the specifics. So picking up uh, Ecclesiastes 7.15, he says, Solomon writing, I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. So we, we mentioned that there's few verses in the Bible that are more susceptible to, uh, to wrong interpretations than, than these particular verses. People come to these verses and, and think that Solomon may be prescribing that we do a, do a little bit of good and we do a little bit of sin, uh, that we, we find that, w- that well-balanced Christian life uh, or that we're commanded here to uh, be a little righteous, but not overly righteous. Don't go too far that direction, uh, that it's okay for us to enjoy uh, a little bit of sin in our lives. But, but we said that's, that's not what Solomon is getting at. <laughs> Certainly that, that contradicts that idea of, of uh, being okay with sin and, and not, going, you know, not pursuing all out righteousness. I mean, that's uh, that, that idea that sin is okay and that we're not to strive too hard for godliness um, certainly contradicts what we find in other, other places in Scripture. So in order to find out what Solomon does mean, we talked about the importance of, of understanding the, the, the context of these verses. Um, in particular, that sort of historical or cu- cultural background from which Solomon was writing. So uh, we, we just said that when you do that, when, when you begin to understand the historical problem that Solomon was addressing, then what appears to be, for instance, in verse, t- verse 16, a very shocking verse at first when you read it and kind of take it at face value, uh, it takes a verse that seems to be, be extremely shocking and it actually becomes, in the end, you're like, that's actually wise counsel. That's some very good counsel. So... So we want to we want to do that, um, and what we tried to do last week was to was to understand better the problem that Solomon was addressing, so that we could then see the wisdom that that Solomon is is giving to us here. So context is important. Um, we have both the immediate context and we have what we call the historical context. The, the immediate context of the passage is is the previous verse. So the immediate context for us here is verse 14, where he says, In the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. So we'll come back to that uh, and it, when we get to the text a little bit later. 
Um, but we have that sort of that immediate context, which is essentially the verses that surround a passage. Then we have the the historical context, and that's just the that's the events, that's the background information regarding the recipients of this this writing, uh, the author himself, uh, the the world view uh, of people at that particular time. Um, we might even say the historical occasion that surrounds uh, what is what is written, and and so that's important too. So we we look at the. The, the context of the verses, the, the verses that surround the passage we're studying, but that we also take into consideration this historical background. And so we looked at this, this the sort of intellectual, intellectual world of Solomon. We said that in Solomon's day there was this um, intellectual subculture. We referred to it as, as the wisdom culture. And, and for the nation of Israel, the book of Proverbs is that, that writing, uh, probably more than any other, that sort of embodies that, that wisdom culture. And this is where Solomon lived. I mean, this is, this, this is what he was completely, um, he was immersed in this wisdom cult- culture, if you will. And so what the wisdom teachers would try to do, we mentioned this, is that they would try to, to sor- sort of boil and distill down uh, God's w- working in the world. So the way in which God works in the world that we live in, try to break that down into simple principles, and then what they would do with those principles is they would then use them to make decisions. So, so they, would, they would come up with principles that explain how God works in the world and in certain situations, and then they would use those, those patterns to guide those day-by-day, moment-by-moment decisions in, in life. And for God's people, the basis of those wise decisions, the basis for those life-shaping decisions was the Mosaic Law. Uh, The Mosaic Law was the foundation of Israel's wisdom and Israel's ethics and and daily practical living. So we we said you can think about Proverbs this way, that that Proverbs connects directly back to the law, Uh, that the themes of Proverbs flow right out of the law, and when you go back to the law, and you see this in the book of Proverbs, one of the things that you notice in the book of Proverbs, and if you go all the way back to Exodus and to Deuteronomy, one of the things that really stands out is this issue of cause and effect, that God works in a cause and effect manner. Uh, we, we use the phrase, you, you reap what you sow, and so this principle of that you, you, you input something and then that results in a certain output. Or we might even say this, that if you live rightly before God, that God will prolong your days, that God will bless you, uh, that God will give you a good life, that that, that is a theme that we see in, in the law and in the book of Proverbs. That generally speaking, if you live right, that God blesses you and, and prospers you, and then the opposite as well, right? That if you, uh, if, if you live badly, we might say, then God will blast you, <laughs> okay? So God is either going to bless you or God is going to blast you depending on if you are living right or if you are living uh, unrighteously or living uh, wickedly. And you see that play out. You see it play out in the historical books. You see it play out in, in books like Samuel and in the book of Judges and in the book of Kings where that we have examples of this 
this very thing, that certain people doing wrong things, not following God's law faithfully, ended up with bad consequences. And then you see the opposite in many cases where people were striving to be faithful to God's law. And as a result of that, they were, they were blessed in obvious ways. We see it also reflected in, in the book of Psalms, especially in the wisdom Psalms. And we looked at Psalm 1 that specifically says that a man that, that doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of the scornful, he delights in God's word, he makes that his meditation, that he will be like this flourishing tree, but the wicked man will have a different set of, of consequences. We certainly see it again in, 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 this, uh, in, in the book of Proverbs, uh, God uh, blasting, so to speak, the wicked and blessing the righteous. And so on a, on a general level or as a general principle, you do reap what you sow. God does typically intervene to ensure that his world operates in that cause and effect manner. That as a general rule, God does bless the faithful and he does punish and blast the ungodly. But what we see in the book of Job and what we see in the book of Ecclesiastes is sort of that balancing truth, and that is this, that sometimes God suspends that cause and effect uh, pattern, right? This was the problem with with Job's friends. Uh, Job's friends assumed that this general principle that we see in Scripture was an absolute principle. That this isn't just a way in which God works, but this is the only way in which God works. And so when we looked at that and we went through several passages in the book of Job, we saw Job's friends, uh, we saw Eliphaz basically coming to Job and, and just telling him, listen, if you, the righteous don't suffer the way that you're suffering. So if you're suffering in such a horrific, horrific way, there is no possible way that you could, you could be honoring God and be pure and blameless in your life. Bildad comes along, another, another friend, counselor, basically agrees with that, uh, that assessment. Zophar does the same thing. In fact, Zophar, we said, actually, when, when Job begins to, to defend his innocence... Uh, Zophar says in, in Job chapter, at chapter 20, he says, I listened to the reproof which insults me. And he's talking about the reproof that he received from Job. So Job is defending his innocence, but from Zophar's perspective, Job was in a sense rebuking him, and it was insulting to him. And the reason it was insulting is because if Zophar agreed with Job's defense and said, okay, Job, you are a godly man, you are blameless, and yet for some reason God is allowing you to suffer in this way, then that would mean for Zophar that the blessing in his life that he was experiencing was not necessarily tied to his faithfulness. So he was seeing that what Job was saying was a basically an insulting correct form of correction because he took it as Job was sort of flipping the table and saying, listen, Zophar, not only am I innocent... <laughs> But it's very possible that you are guilty and that even though you're guilty, you're still experiencing the blessings, right, the prosperity. So all three of these men uh, made essentially the same mistake uh, in their evaluation of what was going on in Job's life and, and why it was happening. 
And so they were making this assumption, assumption that Job's trials were a result of sin and at the same time assuming that if Job had lived righteously, that he would have been blessed. Or to say it this way, if Job, have, if, Job, if Job would have chosen to live right, he could have kept the trials that he was experiencing at bay. He could have kept adversity out of his life if he had just committed to live a godly life. So that was the error of the wisdom culture. Uh, that was the, the error uh, that, that, that many people in the Old Testament committed in sort of overemphasizing a true principle of the Mosaic law, but then sort of manipulating that and turning it into a safeguard against calamity and, and adversity. So they viewed this cause and effect relationship as sort of a, a way of controlling your future. Um, and that's the background. So, so that wisdom culture and that, um, that abuse of wisdom... That is Solomon's historical context. So they were doing it, quite honestly, we do it, right? Abusing and misusing God's wisdom, right? I mean, we we do this too. We we admitted this, (laughs) that even though we're not dealing with the exact same historical situation that Solomon was dealing with, that at its core, we, we do this, right? I mean, we think about it. Something bad happens in your life, and as a believer's, Sometimes your immediate thought is, well, what did I do to deserve that, right? Because we're assuming on our part that we're maybe faithful, and yet the adversity comes, and we're like, what? This doesn't add up. So we, we do this. We fall into this same trap, thinking that we can write our own life story, uh, believing that we can guarantee the life that we want, that we can control our own situation, our own destiny. destiny. So... You know, you, you realize at this point that Solomon is not a heretic, right? Sol- this, this statement that Solomon makes in, in chapter 7, verse 16 is, is not heretical. He's just dealing with a historical problem. Uh, and the problem at its core is still a problem that we, we are dealing with uh, in, our, in our modern day. So Solomon has some good counsel for us here in this, in this passage. For, for those of us who wish... Uh, that we had something that we don't have or that we wish we didn't have something that we have, right? For those of us at times who, who, who wish to God that something in our lives had a different shape to it because Solomon refer, has referred to already that what God has bent, right, in a certain direction, man cannot undo that, right? We don't have the power to be able to to straighten that out. But this, this, is the, this is the historical setting. And you'll notice again there, just to kind of frame this up for us, in verse 14, because this is, this is critical, he says, In the day of prosperity be happy, but in the day of adversity consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. So Solomon says here, Keep in mind, God is the one that ordains both kinds of days. God is the one that ordains both kinds of seasons in our lives, and He withholds, by doing this, He withholds knowledge, uh, knowledge of the future. So in the day of prosperity, He tells us, be happy, 
be happy about that, enjoy God's blessings and give thanks. But in the day of adversity and in the day of difficulty and calamity, see it for what it is. See, see it as something that comes to you from, from the hand of God, something that God has designed and uses for his purposes. So just saying understand God uses both of these kinds of seasons. He is the one that is behind both of them, and he is the one that is in control of both. And God alternates between one and the other. Sometimes God gives us comfort. Sometimes God gives us health. Sometimes God gives us material things and success. And then at other times, he gives us adversity, and he gives us failure and sickness and poverty. And he does that at different intervals so that we won't be able to know the future and so that we won't think that we can control the future. Okay? That is to say, God is not on your leash. Okay? God is not helplessly obligated to give you only good. God is not handcuffed by your righteous living, unable to give the adversity that might actually be for your good and the benefit of your faith and the benefit of the faith of those who live around you and who know you. So sometimes God breaks the pattern, right? God breaks his cause and effect pattern, reminding you and reminding me that, that he is sovereign and that we're not, reminding us that God's grace is sufficient for us, reminding us that we need to trust him and to understand how little that we are in control of things in our lives. So basically what he does here in verses 15 to 18, I want to give you four, four principles. You might call them four warnings. Four warnings in regard to the principle that God blesses the righteous and blasts or batters the wicked or punishes the wicked. Four warning, warnings in regard to the principle that God blesses the righteous and blasts the wicked. Warning, warning number one, sometimes God breaks the pattern. <laughs> sometimes God breaks the pattern. So what he does here in verse 15, he, he, he practically condenses down the entire book of, book of Job to one verse. Verse 15, I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. In other words, God normally follows that reap what you sow principle. God normally does that. But true wisdom realizes that sometimes God breaks that pattern. Sometimes the righteous will be falsely accused. Sometimes the, the, the righteous and the godly will be framed for things that they did not do. And sometimes the wicked will live on, right, enjoying the goods that they maybe have acquired through extortion or bribery or injustice. Uh, but as noted by Asaph in Psalm 73, God will surely correct all injustices. And we looked a little bit at this psalm last week, but uh, in fact, we could even say this. In Ecclesiastes itself, if you go to the end of the book, chapter 12, verse 14, the final book, the final verse of the book is clear about this issue of God correcting injustices. When he says this, for God will bring every act to judgment. Everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So God is going to do that, right? God is, God is not, not overlooking sin, but sometimes for the moment, 
In other words, in the here and the now and in the, in the present, there are times when evil will seem or appear to win, right? It'll appear that way. And Solomon's just saying, when that happens, don't let that throw you off. <laughs> because this threw off many believers, right? When they would see this happen, they would see people living unrighteously and pursuing wickedness and God not immediately bringing judgment into their life, it would throw them off to the point where Asaph said, I almost slipped, right? I mean, in, in seeing how the ungodly were, were prospering and how he was uh, suffering. So just trying to sort through that. So he's just saying, you know, don't let that throw, throw you off. Don't, don't be so committed to the general principle of the law of consequences that you can't see God working in a somewhat different way momentarily. Don't be so committed to this, this principle of, 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 of cause and effect that you think for one second that God has somehow lost control or that God must not judge the wicked after all. So you don't see that immediate judgment in someone's life. And so he's just saying, don't be thrown off and to somehow draw the conclusion, well, I guess God doesn't, isn't in control of that, or I guess God just doesn't care about the wickedness or about the sin that's being committed. So the first principle is just, is this warning. Understand that at times God breaks the pattern. And wise people heed that principle, heed that warning, and they, they, they handle the pattern-breaking uh, wisely. Uh, warning number two, don't attempt to use righteous living to manipulate perpetual good from God. Do not attempt to use righteous living to manipulate perpetual good from God. Verse 16, do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Now, there are, <laughs> from, cons- from liberal scholars through all the way over here to the other side, conservative scholars, you have about a dozen or more interpretations of this. Some of them are, are crazy, honestly. But lots of different interpretations of, of this verse. One thing is clear. This isn't a condemnation of righteousness, okay? And it's not a, a condemnation of wisdom, So this is not a command for us to achieve and to maintain the lukewarm Christian life, okay? To just sort of be a little little godly, but be a little wicked, enjoy enjoy your sin. I mean, mean, maybe Jesus didn't mean it, right? Maybe he didn't didn't mean it when he spoke to the church at Laodicea and said, because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth because you're not hot nor cold. I mean, maybe Jesus really didn't mean that, (laughs) right? Okay, that's, that's not what this is about, okay? Jesus meant what he said, okay? So the question is, well, then, then what is Solomon saying in, in verse 15? And I think what he's getting at is that I, I think he's just saying don't, don't try, don't, don't kill yourself trying to back God into a corner with your righteous living, so that God will only give you good because that is not the way that this works. You're saying, don't try to take your righteous living and somehow corner God as if now he's obligated because of your righteous living to give you perpetual good. Yes. Uh, 
what is Job 5.7? I memorized that a month ago, but it slipped my mind. So, <laughs> what does it say? I'm sorry. Well, I just think is it that, that, that troubles are common to man. I mean, we're all going to experience trouble. So I, I think it's just a statement. Go ahead. Yeah, I think that what you realize, and this is what Solomon's been saying in Ecclesiastes, is that we are living in a sin-cursed world. There are effects of sin, generally speaking, on, I mean, it's touched all of life. Sin has affected all of life. And so, I mean, we were just chatting about this before, but we, we it's, I, I don't think anybody denies that there ought to be affliction. I mean, I think people assume, yes, it's, it's, we live in a sin-cursed world, of course there's going to be affliction, <laughs> But then for some reason, when it comes to us, and this is what Job's friends basically told him. They said, listen, Job, this has come to you. Now it's different. And they were trying to make, again, this, this tight connection between adversity and ungodliness. Not a general form of adversity, but a very specific form of adversity that's directly tied to a person's conduct and the condition of their heart. And so we, it, we ought to expect adversity because we live outside of the garden, and we're not in heaven yet. <laughs> Our struggle is that sometimes when we experience adversity, again, we, and, it, it, and sometimes it's not just, it's not in our own lives that we make that connection. A lot of times it becomes an issue of we're trying to discern what God is doing in other people's lives, and we're doing exactly what Job's counselors were doing in that they were trying to draw conclusions about is he a godly man or is he not? And we do this. All the time, we're trying to figure out why is this going on in someone's life, and we fall into this this very same trap. So Solomon is not he's not downplaying righteous living. He, he's not disdaining righteous living, and he's not putting down wisdom. He is rebuking wisdom abusers who thought that they could use God's general principles of cause and effect to escape the reality of verse 14. So if you think about it, I mean, why would a person multiply righteousness and wisdom in this particular context? Okay, so if you just look at what Job is, or, or Solomon has just said in verse 14, why would a person multiply righteousness in light of what Solomon says in verse 14? And, and I would say what, what, why a person would do that is to get long life, to, to avoid the day of adversity, and to gain more prosperity, <laughs> right? Because he's saying this right on the heels of talking about that you have two different kinds of days that keep coming and going in your life. You have days of prosperity, you have days of adversity, and you don't know when they're coming and going, and God does that intentionally so that you can't know the future and control the future. And then he talks about being excessively righteous. Well, why, why would a person do that? And I'm saying I think it's to avoid the adversity in life and to somehow secure unconditionally to be guaranteed that their life is going to be nothing but success and prosperity. So we do it to get what we want. Okay, that's what he's saying is that there are people that get caught up in 
pursuing righteousness, but the motive behind what they're doing is that they, they really want something bad, right? Now, we may not be as brash as Kenneth Copeland, okay, and some of the faith, word faith teachers. and I mean, Kenneth Copeland, I, this is a quote from him. He said, when we use, quote, when we use the spiritual laws that God has set up, God must obey what we request, okay? goes totally against what Solomon's saying. Solomon's saying, listen, there are, there are our laws, there are principles, but don't ever turn one of these principles into something where you say, if I do this, God has to obey me, <laughs> right? So, again, this is, we all have a built in our hearts, right? At heart, we're just like Eliphaz. And we're just like Zophar. And we're just like Bildad. Uh, we all struggle at times to load righteousness and wisdom with the expectation of the idols that we want to get or to keep. We check off the righteous list. And we expect what we want. And when we face, it, it, when we face adversity, we complain about it. So we all have expectations. And we're all looking for guarantees. We want the guarantee that this or that will happen. And Solomon is just saying, listen, you cannot guarantee the life that you want. You cannot guarantee it. God will not be backed into a corner with formula living, even if it is righteous living. So we should pursue righteousness, but we should never try to manipulate God with our right living. So, again, has, has, has anything ever gone, gone wrong in your life and you thought to yourself, well, what did I do to deserve that? Psalm is saying, listen, God is not your slave, okay? You are his slave. <laughs> Romans 6, right? We heard it a matter of week, just weeks ago, right? We are slaves of God. God is not there to do what we tell him to do, to say, well, this is, this is the principles of your word, and because I did this, then you must... Input equals output. I do this, you do that. We get caught up in that formula living and trying to misuse and abuse wisdom. No, no, no. It doesn't work that way. So that's what this verse is about. It's not, it's not heretical advice. It's actually wise counsel. Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise why should you ruin yourself trying to manipulate God so that he won't give you the adversity of verse 14 when God's very purpose in giving you that is so that you won't forget that he is in control? That's what he's saying. Now, just because your righteous living won't guarantee you a, a carefree life and perpetual blessing, does that mean that you shouldn't even try? <laughs> say, well, if that's the way it works, then why am I striving for righteousness if I can't use it in this way? Well, this is warning number three. Warning number three is don't live as if the reap what you sow principle isn't true. Right? (laughs) Don't live as if the reap what you sow principle isn't true. Verse 17, do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Again, Solomon isn't saying that moderate wickedness is okay. 
Uh, he's not in, endorsing a little bit of sin in moderation. Solomon is simply reminding us that while we cannot force God into a corner with our righteous living, that, that reap what you sow principle, that still holds true, <laughs> right? I mean, you, just, you don't just run off into sin and say, well, if I live righteously, if that's not going to automatically cause me to experience success and prosperity and, and blessing, then, then why do it? I mean, we, we don't want to then swing right way over here and just go on after sin, pursuing our desires. No, Solomon say, listen, and he's already said this. We already talked about this issue of self-control earlier in the chapter. But Solomon's saying, listen, you still have to remember that general principle, that cause and effect relationship. And in light of that, restrain your sinful desires, right? Replace that wicked thought. Keep that wicked mouth shut. <laughs> don't, don't say it. If it's wicked, don't say it. Hold back those wicked actions because sin does lead to consequences. In fact, he'll say this. So Ecclesiastes, uh, if you look over in chapter 8, verse 12, we'll, we'll get there uh, in time. But he says, although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God and who fear him openly. But it will not be well for the evil man. And he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. So again, it's just, it's, it's kind of like you've got to keep these things in balance. You don't correct an imbalance with another imbalance. So you don't swing from way over here to way over here. He's saying, no, you, you have to hold these things. You have to remember both of these things in principle. So don't think for a minute that Solomon isn't committed to the law of consequences. Uh, in fact, We know that because he's the God-inspired author of Proverbs, right? And there's way too many things in Proverbs that reinforce and teach us about this law of consequences and this cause-effect relationship. So on on a regular basis, we, we are attracted to sin. We think that we are entitled to this little bit of prosperity. We think we are entitled to this this day of peace or this little bit of appreciation or this little bit of comfort. Some some small form of financial security, and sometimes we're tempted to think, look, look how many people have gotten away with compromise. So we're tempted to, we, we want these things idolatrously, and sometimes we look at people that are living in wickedness, and we think, well, they pursued wickedness, and it seems like it's going pretty well for them. Maybe I could do that. Maybe that's what I need to do. Maybe I need to be more like them. Solomon says, don't, don't even think about it. <laughs> don't even think about it. Exercise self-restraint. Hold back your anger. When the bribe comes, don't accept it. You know, yet have people done that and, and prospered in the immediate future and outwardly? Yes, they have. They have been, they have been dishonest and they have had, lacked integrity. And in the short term, they have appeared to be doing very well. But Solomon says, say no to those things, because if you don't, there will be consequences. The deception does come to the surface. The house of cards comes tumbling down in time. It takes its toll on your physical and emotional health. Your relationships fall apart. 
trust breaks down, and the general principle does still hold true. So don't forget about that principle. So warning number one, God will sometimes break the cause and effect pattern as he did in Job's life where he broke that pattern. So don't be thrown off and don't panic when you either see or ob- and observe that or if you experience it. Warning number two, don't think that you can use your good living to manipulate perpetual good from God. So if your dealings with customers at your job are above reproach, don't assume that your business must succeed. Don't assume that. If you raise your kids right, don't assume that God will make them believe in Jesus because you did such a stellar job as a parent. Don't do that. Should you teach your kids about God? Should you pray for them to be saved? Should you? Yes, all of those things. But don't tie your righteous living somehow thinking that because you did that, God must now do this thing for you. So righteous, righteous living and faithfulness, uh, those are good things. And they do bring great rewards. Uh, but they should never be a means of trying to control God. Warning number three, never pretend that you won't reap what you sow, because you will. So don't pretend that you won't. And then the fourth warning here in verse 18 is, fear God and you will escape every danger. Fear God and you will escape every danger. Verse 18, it is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. So this is an interesting uh, discussion because when he gets to this verse, uh, he's talking about these things. Okay, The one thing and the other thing. Or we sometimes say the this and the that. So the question is, what are the things that we have in our hands <laughs> that he's talking about here? Or what are the two things that we are to hold on to? Because Solomon does not explicitly tell us what it is in the text. Interestingly, some say it's the righteousness and the excessive wickedness, <laughs> which really makes no sense at all, because basically he would be saying, grasp righteousness and don't let go of wickedness. Okay? Bad. Don't do that. Bad interpretation. If, you're, if you have a commentary and it says that, burn it. Okay? Use it, for, <laughs> use it to start a fire. Okay? Uh, there are, I think, there's two, pot, two viable possibilities here. Uh, Solomon could be referring to the teaching of verse 16 and verse 17. So, he, so in a sense, he could be saying this. First, you need to hold on to the principle that righteous living doesn't force God to give you a pain-free, trial-free life. And second, you need to hold on to the principle that consequences are certain. Okay, And both of those are true. You might live righteously and be given great trials. Hold on to that truth. And be ready if God chooses to do that. But at the same time, hold on to the truth that God does tend to give blessing to the righteous and cursing to the wicked. So he could be saying that take these truths of these warnings, if you will, or the principles of the previous two verses. Hold on to those things. Emerge from this discussion, if you will, with both of these principles in in hand with one in this hand and with one in this hand, because if you don't, 
then you will live a lopsided Christian life and you'll wander off the path into foolishness. So that could be it. He could just be saying, I've given you this principle here about not trying to back God into a corner and I've given you this principle here about don't forget the cause and effect relationship and come forth out of your adversity, come out of this situation, your deliverance is that you come forth with these two principles in hand. And as long as you have both of these truths in hand, you'll be fine. Okay, you'll, you'll escape danger. Okay, and you'll avoid foolish living. The other alternative is that Solomon is referring back to verse 14. Again, in the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one. And in the Hebrew, it's the same, it's the same uh, phraseology. When he says here in verse 14, God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. It's that same idea of God has made this, but he's also made that, the this and the that. So when you get to verse 18, when he's talking about emerging or coming forth with these two things in hand, and he says basically this one thing and this other thing, he could be referring back to verse 14 where he uses this very similar terminology, the this thing and the that thing. But in verse 14, what is the this and the that? Well, it's the prosperity and the adversity. So every extreme, every circumstance that God brings into your life. And Solomon might be saying here, don't order your life idolatrously after, after the prosperity to avoid the adversity. But grab hold of both. When prosperity comes, grab hold of it and be happy. And when adversity comes, grab hold of it and give thanks. Does that make sense? So he would be saying, because our, our tendency is to want to grab the prosperity, right? And then to use righteous living in the next verse to avoid the adversity. So he could be saying, the, the real deliverance here is that you learn to take hold of both seasons of life. You, you learn to take hold of both days. Grab hold of prosperity when it comes and enjoy it. It's a gift from God, but when adversity comes, don't run. Grab hold of that too and give thanks. Yes, sir. Uh huh. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, so, so some of it, and again, it, it, I, they're both, I think, well, certainly both of those interpretations are biblical. <laughs> so, I mean, they're both acceptable. The, 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 the challenge is just, well, okay, they're both acceptable, but what does he mean? I don't think he means both things. I mean, I think in Solomon's mind, there's, there's an intent. He, he means one of these. So, and I'm more inclined to, 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 to think of to probably lean in the direction of the second one because of the similarity in language. So again, it just—it's it, just another one of those places where we, you know we teach you guys, and we, we say this all the time: that you need to have a a set of inter, uh, principles of interpretation. In our church, grammar, historical background—we call it the historical grammatical, hermeneutic, 
cultural background. I mean, that's what I'm saying. This is where grammar is important because you see the grammar in verse 14, you see the grammar in 18, you think, okay, well, that makes sense that he's tying back to that. Theologically, the first interpretation is makes sense. I mean, to say, well, I've given you these two truths, hold them in balance is basically what he would be saying in that, in that situation. So if it is this second interpretation, he's just saying, Grab hold of both of these seasons, grab hold of both of these times, these days in life. And when you do, you escape or you emerge safely from the dangers that have been presented here. The danger of multiplying righteousness and wisdom in order to satisfy our idolatrous desires, as well as the danger of multiplying wickedness in order to satisfy our idolatrous desires. Either way, right? I mean, if we're pursuing wickedness flat out, it's because we want something idolatrously. But sometimes we are using and misusing or abusing God's wisdom in order to also get our idolatrous desires and to pursue prosperity and avoid adversity altogether. So this is what the fear of God does. The fear of God brings us safely through, uh, being genuinely concerned about honoring God, uh, being sincerely concerned about doing what pleases Him and avoiding what offends Him. It, it, go ahead. Yeah, I think he's saying so that no man will know the future. So that it's not, so that, so that we can't live a certain way to bring about a certain result. Because if we could do that unconditionally, if we had that ability, then we would, we would get trapped into this formula living of I'm doing this and therefore I know what's coming. I know for a fact if tomorrow's going to have adversity or blessing because I can tie it directly back to my conduct. What he's saying is God changes this up and sends you different days to keep you guessing. <laughs> because when you don't know what's coming, what do you do? You trust God. Say, Lord, I know that I'm living right, but I also know that what's best for me right now may be a day of adversity. And if you bring it, I'll trust you in it. And I won't make that assumption that just because I'm going through adversity, that doesn't mean that you're punishing me for something I did last Friday. (laughs) Now, does God sometimes bring consequences for things that we did last Friday? Yes. (laughs) But it's just saying keep both of these things in view. And fearing God is really, I think, the thing that keeps you from crashing on the rocks over here and crashing on the rocks over here. It kind of takes you through the difficulty in a wise way because ultimately the fear of the God drives you to be concerned about what God, what pleases the Lord. And and, and if, 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 if this pleases the Lord, then that's what I'm going after. And I'm not going after it with expectations that God must do what I want him to do. And if God says that this thing over here is sinful and wrong and it dishonors him, I don't want to get near that, right? I'm going to avoid that. That's what the fear of God does. It's interesting in Ecclesiastes 11.9, he says this, Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of your young manhood, and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all of these things. Now, that sounds a little different, right? And we're like, whoa, I don't, are we supposed to be doing what's in our heart? I thought our hearts weren't, you know, can't be trusted. And what about the desires of our eyes? I thought that was a problem, Right? <laughs> But I think what he's getting at here is he's just simply saying that the desires, of, the desires of your life will be acceptable when you walk in the fear of the Lord. 
that fearing God will protect your heart from danger on every side because when you, it's okay to do the desires of your heart and to go after the desires of your eyes as long as you realize you're going to have to give an account for these things. Well, that's what we call the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is that thing that reminds us that we live in the presence of God and that nothing escapes his attention. And so we're going to have to answer to God for all these things. So we'll talk more about that when we get there. So the conclusion here is that Solomon didn't fall off the theological wagon, okay? He was just dealing with a specific historical problem that may be with us today in a slightly different form, but it is still with us. And truly, there is nothing new under the sun. So we need to be careful about our expectations. Thomas Boston, and I'll I'll close with this. Uh, Thomas Boston uh, was born in Duns, Scotland in 1676 to a wonderful set of Christian parents, uh, converted at age 11. Uh, By the age of 22, he was a licensed preacher and minister in the Church of Scotland, already uh, writing books. Uh, In 1707, he took up the pastorate in a southern Scottish town known as Ettrick, where he remained there up until the point of his death, serving in pastoral ministry. They passed away at 1732 at the age of 56. Um, extremely sort of um, uh, well-known, I guess, for his theology, for the breadth of his writing, for his faithfulness as a pastor uh, in, a, in a small rural parish for 25 years, but especially known for his perseverance through suffering. He was a uh, what you might call as a melancholy individual, a sort of a, a downcast individual, prone to seasons of discouragements in the Christian life, uh, often uh, poor in health, living for many of his years and ministering with what we now assume were kidney stones, but they didn't know what those things were then. But that was a, a regular uh, trial in his life. Uh, his wife also suffered from chronic illness. Uh, she frequently uh, battled uh, depression but perhaps the, the couple's greatest trial was the death of their children. They lost six of their ten babies. Okay, now I know people that have lost a child, maybe lost more than one, but it's, it's hard for me to even comprehend losing six babies. Uh, one loss that was a, a particularly tragic um, Thomas Boston had already lost a son named Ebenezer. Uh, when his wife gave birth to another son, and Boston considered naming the other son Ebenezer. Um, hesitated at first. Uh, is that something we should do or not do? But ultimately did name that other son Ebenezer, believing that that would be a testimony of hope in God's faithfulness, and so by faith, he decided he would do that. So in his mind, he's thinking, I'm assuming from his writings, that he lost a son, and he's thinking, okay, but for God to replace that son, give us another boy, and then to name him the same name, then this will be a testimony to others to say, you know what, the Lord did take that away, but the Lord also replaced and, 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 and brought blessings. So we had adversity, but then there was a, there was a future day of, of prosperity and blessing. Okay? Well, you can guess what happened. Okay? They lost that son. They lost that son. 
And he writes in his memoirs, quote, It pleased the Lord that he also, speaking of his boy, that he also was removed from me. Uh, a huge loss, uh, but rather than accusing God uh, of wrongdoing or abandoning his faith or dropping out of the ministry, he, rather than turning away from the Lord in that time of trial, he turned to, to the Lord for help and for comfort. And one of the last sermons that Boston preached and prepared for publication is one titled, The Crook in the Lot, <laughs> which was based on the command and the question that we find in Ecclesiastes 7.13, Consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what God has bent? So you can actually get this. I'd recommend if you if you know of somebody that's is just in fact it's called crook in the lot, a Puritan's understanding of that thorn in your side, and it's uh, it actually comes from a series. It ended up being a series of seven sermons, but like this chapter one in this particular version says the sovereignty and wisdom of God in man's affliction, but he's just writing out of his own personal experience that. I mean, affliction after affliction after affliction. And yes, like us, at times he fell into that trap of thinking, okay, I understand that adversity thing, but if I keep, if, if I keep responding the way that I'm supposed to be responding, surely God is going to bring some form of prosperity and still trying to connect these things, but ultimately come to the realization that God has, God is going to do what He's going to do, and, and we face the decision of, of trusting him or not, and, and we've got to be careful about our expectations. We've got to be super careful about our expectations in the Christian life. The day of prosperity, the day of adversity, Solomon says, God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. God is good. God is wise. God is sovereign. We should fear him. We should trust him. We should love him. But we should never try to control him. We should never try to control him. And that was, that was wise living in Solomon's day. That was wise living. And that is still wise living. That's still wise living. So Solomon isn't a heretic. He didn't fall off the wagon. He actually gives us, I think, some incredible wisdom about how to handle these various seasons in life and to recognize this cause and effect relationship, this law of consequences, but to never turn and twist those things that God teaches in his word to somehow get us the idolatrous things that we want so desperately, either to get or to protect and uh, to safeguard. Okay. All right. So we'll break here and uh, next week I will be out uh, because I'll be involved a lot that weekend at teaching at the conference, but we'll have someone standing in uh, to teach, and then I'll be back with you guys in two weeks. Okay? All right. Thanks for your time, guys.